great to have you with us this morning. Um, we are going to be continuing on in our series uh, looking at the story of Christmas through the lens of the first family of Christmas. Uh, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you've seen that we've looked already at uh, the characters of Elizabeth and Zechariah, Mary's relatives kind of from out of town. Then we looked at Mary herself, the mother of Jesus, and Joseph, the father of Jesus. That was last week. And I kind of feel like we've just been circling around the central figure of the story, uh, getting closer and closer to the, the heart of the story, the heart of Christmas, and that is, of course, Jesus himself. And this morning, we are going to see the birth of Jesus, the baby Jesus in the manger. Um, One of the things that sets the Christmas story apart from other sort of foundational stories of world religions is that when you read this story, we're going to read just the first part of it, verses 1 to 7, you're going to be struck by the fact that this doesn't read like an allegory or a myth. It doesn't read like something that someone sort of invented with characters that are larger than life. Uh, These people seem like real people because they are. Uh, In fact, some of the people in the story are people that we we know from other historical texts. Uh, People like Caesar Augustus and this other uh, guy Quirinius. Uh, These are people that we can corroborate. We can see they really lived there at that time. And so the Christmas story is, is a magnificent story, but it's also the story of real people in a real time uh, going through specific events. Now, uh, one other thing that's interesting about the, uh, the, the characters involved, Caesar in particular, is that he's not just a fact-checkable person. Like He's not just inserted. He is in part because Luke wants us to know, look, this is a real, real place. The historical facts are accurate. But Luke also uh, organizes this passage in particular so that Caesar and Jesus are kind of contrasted. Uh, They are both shown to be central figures, clearly in what was going on at the time. But there's a a very clear contrast between the two of them. And this morning, we're going to see them in that light. That Caesar uh, very much is a son of the world, whereas, of course, Jesus is a son of God. And as we see the contrast between the two of them, Uh, We're going to come to better understand who Jesus is, uh, what he did to save us, and uh, how it is that we can have our ultimate hope in him. So with all that in mind, uh, we're going to look to the text, beginning in verse 1. This is kind of the classic story of Christmas, and it begins this way. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So we're going to stop there, and I'm going to pause for prayer, and then we'll get into our text. Uh, Lord God, thank you for the Christmas season. Thank you, God, for the story of Christmas. I thank you, Lord, that here we have uh, ample evidence, Lord, of your work in world history, but also, Lord, of your work to bring us a lasting hope. God, I pray that uh, as we turn our attention here, God, that we would be encouraged and uplifted. Uh, I pray, Lord, that we would come to understand you more, and God, that we would also come to understand um, our need for you even more. Uh, Help us, Lord, to uh, appreciate what is here, to understand it. And God, please help me to explain in all truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, as I said, we're going to see a contrast this morning. And uh, we are going to begin with Caesar Augustus, 
whom I'm calling son of the world. And what we see in him is someone who brings hope to the world in a sense, uh, but he does it through power. Uh, It's helpful to, well, let's look first at our beginning verse of our text again. Uh, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Here we see a clear demonstration of power. Uh, You need a lot of power to command that there be a census and have, you know, all of these people move to their own hometown to be counted. Uh, Caesar had that kind of power. And we we get even a a greater sense of his power when we know a bit more about him. So uh, his his given name was Octavius. Uh, Here's his statue of Caesar Augustus, looking very regal. Um, He was born Octavius. He was born into a noble family in Rome, uh, a family of horse breeders. Uh, Right from a young age, he set himself apart as a man of strength and intellect. Uh, He was a a really, really sharp guy. In fact, uh, he was admired by those around him, so much so that his great uncle, who was Julius Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar took such a shining to him that he actually wrote him into his will. He adopted Octavius and made him one of his heirs. And when Julius Caesar was murdered, uh, Octavius banded together with Mark Anthony and another Marcus that no one cares about, and they together, they went to uh, attack or sort of challenge these assassins. And they beat them. That was how they, he first came to power, is that this, uh, they called it the triumvirate. They divided Rome into three parts, and they began by ruling Rome. Um, of course, it wasn't long before they were fighting amongst each other uh, for greater power and greater influence. And in the end, Octavius beat Mark Anthony and the other Mark, and he became the ruler of Rome. And at that point, the Roman Senate gave him the name, which was uh, Augustus, which, which means illustrious one. And at that point, he did something uh, quite brilliant. He reinstated the Roman Republic and made it seem as if the the governing authorities were there to serve the people. But actually, he ruled from behind the scenes with with almost absolute power. And so you see him over the years uh, develop this web of influence and power. But all the while, he really gave the impression that he was serving the people. Uh, In fact, he didn't take uh, the title emperor or king or supreme ruler, anything like that. The title he took for himself was in Latin, uh, Princeps Civitatis, which means the first citizen of the state. And so his, his whole uh, idea about himself was that he was here to help the people. That, that in amassing all of this power, he wanted to bring them some measure of, of hope and benefit. And, and he did to a certain extent. I mean, his rule meant the beginning of uh, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which lasted for almost a thousand years. He made a lot of improvements to the empire. Uh, he started, uh, he built the road system so he could connect the empire. He established the first courier service, like UPS, started there. People went back and forth. Never happened before. They could send parcels, I guess. Um, he also established the first uh, schools, a standing army, firefighters, and a police force. Uh, he very much meant to improve the empire. And that was... That was really the way that he saw the world, that you amassed as much power as you could, and then you could affect change and bring a measure of hope to the people around you. This is something we see in our lives, uh, too. This is not just for, for dictators and political figures. There's a way in which I think that we also see our lives, see a connection in our lives between power and hope. Uh, hope, hope really just means that you have something to look forward to, right? There's something good happening right now. Everyone uh, under a certain age is very hopeful because in a couple of days, there should be a present somewhere for them to open. That's a good thing. That's a blessing. We get excited about that. 
And in our minds then, living in this world, we connect uh, the, the, the money that we have with the power and hope in our lives, which makes sense because uh, the more money you have, the, the more power you have to affect change in your life. If you have enough money, you can, you can buy yourself stuff, which is always fun. Uh, you, can, you can buy a better house. You can afford to move into maybe a better uh, area of the city. You can, you can buy cars. You can afford trips. It's always, you always feel more hopeful when you're looking forward to a vacation. Many of the things, if you just live in the world for any amount of time, we get the distinct impression that for us to have a hopeful life, we need to amass as much wealth and resources and, and power as we can. That's what Caesar did. We see that evidence in the way that he ran the empire. And when the Roman Empire started running out of money, he just overhauled the tax system. And he called for a census, which is what we see here in our text. That he said, you know what would be good is if we count every single person. And that we make sure that they are paying us exactly what we think that they should. And that was his exercise of power. But seen from the larger point of view of kind of the narrative of biblical history, even the Christmas story itself, it's interesting to see that this this exercise of power on Caesar's behalf, it actually reveals the inherent limitations of his power. Because seen from God's point of view, this isn't just Caesar deciding to, to have everyone go to their hometown. This actually is God bringing about the fruition of a prophecy from hundreds of years ago. So if, uh, if you look at our text, we'll see this how this plays out. Uh, it says in verses 4 and 5 that Joseph... He hears the decree from Caesar, so he responds. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, from the world's point of view, Mary and Joseph are just pawns on the chessboard controlled by Caesar. They don't don't want to make this journey. This is a very inopportune time. Mary is almost full term in her pregnancy. And now they have to go on a journey that's 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. This is not a safe journey. This is not a a good idea, except that the power of Rome compels them. They have to make the journey. And you can imagine them trudging along, thinking to themselves just of how frustrated they are, that there are forces at work in their life that they can't control. But in light of uh, the Old Testament scriptures, we see that, that that is not the only force at play here. Because through the the prophet Micah, God already foretold of this move hundreds of years ago. This is what we find in Micah 5.2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. See, in this transition, this movement, we see not not really the hand of Caesar, but we really see the hand of God. That, That from... From the world's point of view, from Caesar's point of view, he's just doing what he always does. Exercising power to bring about what he thinks will be best for the empire and from himself. But from God's point of view, it's Caesar who is upon. Caesar who is being moved about on the greater chessboard of the universe. And what we see is that God is accomplishing his purposes. And in this case, really in every case, but we can see it really clearly here, his purpose is to bring about greater hope for humanity. And he does this by bringing about the Savior of the world, Jesus himself, who comes not in power, but rather in weakness. And we're going to see that that weakness actually leads to greater hope for us. But just before we get there, it's good to pause for a moment. And in light of this text, just to remind ourselves who is really in control of our lives. 
because when we come to these parts in Scripture where we see kind of the, the world events from different points of view, uh, we, we often feel, I think, like Mary and Joseph felt. Like there are things going on in our life that we, we can't control, that we are forced to do certain things that we don't want to do, that we are tossed to and fro by forces that are, are beyond us. And yet we're reminded here that there is never a situation in our lives that is outside of the hand of God. And that God is at work in our lives. He is bringing about all of his purposes, which is his promise to us is that they are good purposes. And so for, for a clarifying moment, we can, we can take a breath, even in light of whatever happened this week, which probably this week, probably every week, there's something happened that we think, man, that's, I would not have planned that. I don't want that to happen. I, I'm, I'm having to respond to something that is more powerful than I. It should encourage our soul to remind ourselves that even that passed through the hands of God. And that for Mary and Joseph, who, who trudged for 80 miles, um, it would have been encouraging. Hopefully they were holding on to the, to the promise of the Old Testament that God was at work in their lives. I mean, they had been told that the Messiah was coming. And so even in this, this, this long journey, hopefully they were encouraged by the fact that, that here God was still at work. Our benefit is that we can see it from the vantage point of, of Scripture and thousands of years later. But we are in those moments now where we feel frustrated, we feel out of control, and yet the same truths remain. It's God's hand who moves every piece on the chessboard of the universe. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention now to Jesus. The, the, the contrast to Caesar Augustus, son of the world, who brings hope and power. Now we find Jesus Christ, the son of God, who brings hope and weakness. And we see this in the last a couple of verses, verses 6 and 7. It says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. It's a very clear contrast to Caesar, who was born uh, with privilege, a man of power, a man of opportunity and wealth. The baby Jesus was none of these things. Uh, we sometimes forget the realities of the nativity scene because we, we see it depicted in like children's books and just, it, it always seems rather quaint, right? There's always golden hay. There's kind of a nice looking donkey that's looking on, kind of smiling somehow. There's a ray of celestial light, right? And it just seems like, man, that must've been just such a special time. We forget that uh, it, was, it was some sort of a barn or a stable or a cave Right? And if you've ever been to any of those places, you know that they are, they are not lovely places to be. Certainly not any lovely place for, for a child to be born. They, they are grimy and dirty. There would, it would have been filled with uh, stink of animal sweat and urine and feces. There would have been bugs everywhere. Uh, there was nothing sterilized anywhere. There's no sterilized instruments or even clean blankets. Joseph would have helped with the pregnancy and then uh, to cut the umbilical cord would have had his work knife. Like his Leatherman, he would have just popped it out. That was, that was the reality of the situation, right? It was a, if we were there, we would be aghast. In light of how babies are brought into the world in our day, we would be like, how, wait, could someone please boil something, sterilize something, please? This poor child is going to get some sort of disease. We would we'd be totally shocked. But the truth is that this is, I mean, this was very normal for the time. This was a common human birth. In fact, it still is. All over the world, in many places of the world, children are brought into the world in this, in this type of circumstance. And that's kind of the point. That this is a, a very common birth because Jesus is entering the world as a, as a common human being. 
In light of this text, we are brought face to face once again with the, the wondrous reality of the incarnation. That the supreme ruler of the universe would, would humiliate himself, condense himself to a, to a child. He was completely helpless, dependent upon his mother. I came across uh, this, this uh, part of a poem. There's a poet, Lucy Shaw, uh, who, who in this case is writing about uh, the incarnation, writing about uh, Mary. It's called Mary's Song. And these few lines uh, about the baby Jesus, I think, really capture this. Uh, they go like this. Quiet he lies, whose vigor hurled a universe. He sleeps, whose eyelids have not closed before. And you just get this, this idea for a moment that, I mean, Jesus is a being of infinite power. He has never been tired. He has never been exhausted. He never needed anything from anyone. And now he has condensed himself into this, this little bundle of flesh that is completely dependent, like every other human child, upon his mother. And so we have a very clear picture that, that this was intentional. He came in weakness on purpose. And it's good for, for us to ask the question, why? I mean, we assume, we know that it's true. This is the Christmas story. We've heard it so many times. But why did Jesus have to come in weakness? Why did he come in this way? Uh, it's a good question, especially when you consider all the other times that God entered the world, that God spoke to people or God influenced the world. He, in the Old Testament, we don't see weakness from God. We, saw, we see constant displays of power. Just think of the Exodus with Moses. God comes and displays his power over the Egyptians through all the plagues. He frees his people by taking them through the Red Sea. Even at, when Moses comes to visit with, um, when God comes to visit with Moses on Mount Sinai, all the people are warned to stay away. There's thunder and lightning. Anytime an angel of God appears, everyone is scared out of their mind, right? There's such evident divine power. That's the constant refrain of the Old Testament is that our God is a mighty God. You see it bookended in the, in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, where Jesus himself is pictured in his second coming as a conquering king, returning to earth to to liberate humanity, to, to destroy all of the evil and sin that exists. And he comes on a war horse. He, he comes in a display of, of overwhelming power. In fact, even in the Christmas story, it's very clear that Jesus is a being of power. Let's look again, just reminded, but be reminded of the words of the angel. Uh, firstly, to Mary. Here's what he says about Jesus. It says, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's clear language of, of authority and divinity. We see it uh, again when the angel speaks to Joseph. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is affirmed within the narrative of Christmas itself as a being of absolute power, of divine authority. And yet, here we see him come with an overwhelming display of weakness. And so it's, it's worth wondering, why did he do it that way? Did he have to do it that way? Well, the short answer is that Jesus came in weakness because in his weakness, he brought us greater hope. But I want to dig into that a little more. So we're going to ask that question and look at two responses to it. So here's the question. Uh, why was weakness necessary? I'm going to argue that it was necessary. Jesus coming in weakness was necessary to bring us the hope that God intended for humanity. So two answers. Here's the first one. Uh, it was necessary because Jesus came to redeem the world, not to conquer it. See, conquering of the world is Caesar's way. That, that, that was his, 
If there's ever a problem, you send more troops, right? We need more. We need another battalion. We need another legion. That was always the Roman response, that if we could just conquer this area of the world, then we could organize it the way we want. We could deal with any unrest. It, it will actually be better for those people because we, we will organize things and bring a measure of peace to the world. That's always the way that the world thinks. That if we can just control things, then we can, we can organize the community, the, the nation for its good. I mean, even today, that's how our governments work, right? We have, we have a government. We have a judicial system to uh, penalize those who do wrong. We have a policing system to make sure that we're all driving the speed limit. These are, these are good things, right? Even in the home, there's some measure of, of um, control there. Parents are put there so they can restrain the evil of their children, which is great. <laughs> it's a good thing for the family, and it's a good thing for our country that we would organize ourselves. Uh, the, the challenge, though, is that with all of the control and, and conquering, in a sense, that we do of the world around us, we are only ever addressing the symptoms of the problem of humanity and never the essence of the problem. Because the essence of the problem is deeper than just the way that we behave. It comes down to the heart itself. Uh, the Bible says that our, the real problem of humanity is our sin. That in each human heart, we have a, a disposition uh, towards going our own way rather than God's way. And that means that in our lives, we see evidence of this brokenness and sin. We see it uh, in, our, in our selfishness. We see it in our greed. We see it in the way that we treat others. We see it in the way that we are apathetic towards evil that exists. We see this then when all of us as individuals come together and form a community, that the community itself has these same strains of selfishness and greed and corruption. And yes, we have a government that is there to restrain the evil, to organize, to punish evildoers, and, and that's helpful. In fact, God ordained that that would be the case. But while good government can restrain sin, it cannot redeem it. It cannot bring ultimate hope. And the reason for that is because with all of our best efforts, it's still efforts made by sinful human beings. And you see this in, in the way that we try to make the world better. It works to a certain extent sometimes, but it never works perfectly. Because there's always corruption in the heart of man. And that means that there's a judicial system, but there are judges that make bad calls. There's a police force, but there are individuals that abuse their power. There are officials in different countries, and we send aid there, and yet because of the corruption, they, they take most of it for themselves. Even in our own lives, we have a desire to do good. Right? Most of us here would say, no, I, I want to be good to the people around me. I, I want to love people well. And yet if we look at our track record, we can see that we, we aren't able to do it perfectly. And so there remains this this residual, this persistent sin. And that means that the essential problem of humanity, the thing that makes it so difficult to bring us hope is that we are united to the thing that is destroying us. That we are bound together with sin. And so to try to deal with sin, you're, you're dealing with us. Here's how Isaiah describes uh, human beings in Isaiah 64, verse 6. He says, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf in our iniquities. That's our sins. Like the wind, take us away. So he's saying even in our best efforts, there's, there's something broken within us that it never pans out. And we never are actually able to, to live the good life that we intend and to love people the way that we should. 
We are bound to sin. And, and that meant that the challenge for Jesus, he knew that if he came in absolute power with an all-out assault on sin, he could bring justice to the world. But it would mean destroying us along with the sin because we are bound together with it. It's the same challenge that physicians face when they're trying to treat someone with cancer. Right? The, the cancer cells are part of the human body. And so as much as possible, the treatments like radiation therapy and chemotherapy, they're very potent weapons to destroy the cancer cells. But the problem, of course, is that they're so strong that they end up damaging the healthy tissue around the cancer cells. And so the challenge very often is that sometimes there are patients that are so sick that they can't endure the treatment itself. And that would have been the case for us had Jesus returned in full glory, full, full power. In fact, we saw that once before in the time of the flood with Noah, where, where God's response to all of the evil and corruption of the world was to, was to bring justice. And he did, but, but not fully. Not fully because of his love for humanity. No one in his family found favor with God. And it's that same love, that same grace that we see there that, that explains why Jesus came in weakness. Because he wanted to bring real hope, lasting hope. And that meant that he could not come in strength and fury and righteous anger. He had to come in weakness. So that he could, he could redeem us rather than conquer us. I mean, isn't that what we... If you think about how we love the people around us, it usually comes down to us wanting good for their lives. We want to do something, help them in some way. We want to bless them in some way. And that means that we want to bring uh, hope and, and healing or, or whatever is within our power to do. We want that for them. And that's what we see with Jesus. Jesus knew for us to have any real hope, we needed to be redeemed from sin. And, and to be redeemed from sin means to be saved from its consequences. It means to be separated from it, to be liberated from its curse. And the only way to do that was to come in weakness as one of us. So that through his obedience, he could earn the righteousness we lost before God. And so that in his weakness, he could, he could go and take the penalty of death, the death that we deserve on himself. We find this uh, articulated very concisely and beautifully in Galatians 3, where it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That last part's a reference to the cross itself. That, that it's in the crucifixion. In Jesus coming as a human being, that level of weakness that then he was able to go to the cross and to, to be crucified on our behalf, it, it's in that that we, are, we were set free. We were liberated. That his willingness to be weak in that way meant that he could that he could take the suffering on himself so that we would have life. Because Jesus didn't want just, he didn't want for us just a little bit of hope. He, he didn't want what the world had to offer for us. It's not that the world's hope is bad. It's, it doesn't last. It's not enough. I mean, look at the Roman Empire. It was great for a very long time. Thousands of years, people would have thought it would go on forever, but it didn't. Because eventually the, the leaders, they, they fell apart. That's what always happens. Jesus doesn't want for us to spend all of our time longing for the hopes of this world, which we tend to do. We tend to get caught up in them because, they, man, they seem so good, so real. It seems like they're going to last forever because it's hard for us to see past next week. But Jesus sees our lives for eternity. 
And what he wants for us is the very best hope that we could ever have. And that means that we would have access to heaven itself, that we would have access to, to being in the presence of God, that our hope that when we think about the good that God has for us is not just about the, the material provision and the health that, that he, he might do and does do here in this life, but ultimately it's in a, the life to come that there would be a day when we, when we wake up each morning and we are absolutely certain that this is going to be a good day. That we have no anxiety, we have no concern, we have no pains or aches. There's nothing gnawing at our soul. No, none of that is there. Why? Because, because we are perfect. Made perfect by the blood of Christ and we are in a place of perfection. Where the whole world is made new and we are able to live in the presence of God. Like that's a hope that, that eclipses anything that the world has to offer. But the only way for us to access that was for Jesus himself to come and redeem us. Not just, not just conquer us, to redeem us. And he did that beginning at Christmas. Because in that, in that little baby, we have um, the, the evidence of human weakness there. And in light of scripture, we can see the trajectory of the hope that he will bring. So, the connection between the weakness of Jesus and our hope is all about the redemption. The, the sacrificial offering that he gives for us that is the ultimate answer. But <clears throat> there's a second piece to it. Because while Jesus came to redeem humanity, it's only effective if we see our need for it. If we ourselves recognize our own weakness and we turn to God for help. And so that's the second answer. Why was weakness necessary to bring us hope? Second answer, because it's only in weakness that we see our need for Jesus. See, one of the most devious uh, aspects of sin is not just that it separates us from God and from life. It's that it blinds us to our need for Jesus. That in our sin, we tend to think that we're doing okay. In fact, if you think about humanity in general, all of us, yourself included, you would see that by and large, we, we tend towards self-sufficiency, to an unhealthy level of self-sufficiency. Um, just as an example, I'm going to read a few phrases and uh, I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that we probably have all heard these phrases uttered uh, very, very frequently by ourselves or by others. So in response to the question, how are you doing? Uh, I think we hear this very often. I am fine. Are you doing okay? I'm fine. I, I'm really, I'm okay. Because you, no, no, I, I know, but I, honestly, I think I just need some rest. I just need some sleep. I just, I've been a bit tired lately, but really everything is fine. I'll, look, I, I know that it seems like I've been really struggling with some things, and I have, but I'll figure them out. It's okay. I appreciate the offer. I appreciate the help, but I think everything will be fine. I just need to regroup. I just need to gather myself, and then everything is going gonna, is gonna to be great. I'm going to figure it out. I'm fine. We hear that a lot. You know what we don't hear so much? <clears throat> we don't hear this very often. Um, you know, I, I really think I need some help. I know that, I mean, I don't know if you have time right now, but I, I just could really use someone to talk to because there's some things that I've been, uh, I've been kind of dealing with and I, you know, I thought that I had them under control, but I, I just, I don't think I do. Like, I, I'm not sure how I'm going to uh, keep going because I feel overwhelmed. I feel anxious. I feel, I just need someone to talk to. In fact, if you could pray for me, that would be great because I, I, I just really think I need some help. We say those words uh, sometimes, but it tends to be few and far between. 
And that means that for much of our life, we are struggling with issues on our own instead of getting help from the people around us. And that's bad enough when it comes to our friends and family. But it's disastrous when it comes to the, the deeper needs of our lives. Things that only God can fill. I remember one time meeting with a man who uh, was not part of a church, uh, not, a, not a believer. Uh, we just had been connected and he really wanted someone to, to talk with, just kind of to connect with. He was going through a hard time. So uh, I said, sure. We sat down, we started talking and it turns out that uh, he had just gone through just a really difficult breakup, that he had a relationship for a couple of years and that it just went sideways. And it, it really uh, rocked him. It was causing him to really reevaluate his life. And so we talked, we talked about it at some length, talked about the relationship, talked about his life. I uh, talked about his past kind of history with his family. And there was one point where he said something that, man, I just thought it was, it was so insightful. And I, I, I thought there was such a clarity of mind for him as he was talking about his past. Here's what he said. He said, uh, he said, you know, I think I've always struggled. I've always struggled to feel like I was worthy of being loved. And when I heard that, I thought, man, yeah, that's, man, we, we all struggle with that. And what an opportunity to, to share the love of God. And so I said to him, look, can I just share kind of how, how I think the Bible would respond to that? And he said, sure. I said, well, well, look, all, all of us as human beings, we're, we're always going to struggle with a feeling of self-worth when we are connecting that to the way that others love us. If, if we're basing our own identity and, and our value on how people love us, we're going to be in rough shape because no one loves us perfectly because we're often rejected. Uh, people disappoint us. P- people tell us that they, they don't think that we're, we're worthy of being loved. And so we take that on ourselves and it, it brings us to such a low point. I said, but the thing about God's love is that it's a very different kind of love. It's love rooted in his grace and his mercy. And what we see in the Bible is that he's, he's committed to loving us regardless of however we fail. It's an unconditional love rooted in his work, his power. That's why he sent Jesus to come and, and live for us and die for us. And, and I just sort of said, man, when you know the love of God, you are redefined as a person. And you have value, not in of yourself, not in other people, but in God himself. I got to tell you, man, I thought I really nailed it. Like, I just thought, man, that, that I just really spoken like into him and that he was just going to, that lights were going to go on because I, you know, I, that's the gospel. That's what God's answer is to our need for love. And it is what he was articulating is something that's true for all of us. And he kind of thought about it. And the next words out of his mouth were, you know, I just really hope that I can uh, get a hold of this girl again because I'd really like to just connect with her. I've just been thinking if I get one more chance with her that then, and I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, that, ah, just, see this man, he, here's the thing. He, he was, his need was evident. Some measure of his need was evident, but, but he didn't see how very desperate he was. I mean, in his mind, he knew that he was going through a tough patch, but he was still looking to his own wisdom and his own strength. He was still trying to figure out in his own mind how he could orchestrate his life to bring about good. And in his mind, if he could just find someone to love him, then all would be well. And that's often the way it is for us. That, that we know that we're going through challenges in our life. That we know that it's difficult. We know that this, this period of life, whatever is going on, there's a whole host of things that could be challenging us, but we think we can still make it through. In fact, we spend most of our time thinking and worrying and trying to figure out how we're going to make it from here to there and connect all the dots in our own strength, in our own wisdom. And because we're so busy 
being preoccupied with the challenges of life, we very rarely turn to Jesus himself and say, Lord, I, I need you. Like, I, I'm, I need you. Apart from you, I, I am not going to be able to make it through. I'm not going to be able to acquire a genuine sense of hope and goodness and joy in my life. In fact, you even see this uh, in, a, in a subtle way in the text itself, in this, this scene of the birth of Jesus. Because in verse 7, the last verse there, uh, when they come to find a place for Jesus to be born, they have to lay him in a manger. It says, because there is no place for them in the inn. Now that phrase, there is no place for them, is, is a classic Christmas sermon point. Which, which pastors usually make, which is, look, there is no room for Jesus in the inn, just like there's no room for Jesus in our hearts. And that's a great point. In fact, that should have been my last point. So <laughs> that is the point that I'm making. But here's the thing. If you were to look at this text, we, we need to be fair to the text itself. The people in the inn, I don't think it's fair to say that they really knew who they were rejecting. I, I think it would be a stretch to say that Joseph entered the inn and said, hello, everyone. Look, uh, the Messiah is about to be born. Um, my wife is, we're married, but she's not my child. Uh, the Holy Spirit, you know what I mean. And so uh, if we could have one of your rooms, that would be great. And then everyone said, no way, I'm tired. And they closed the door in their face. It wasn't, I don't think it was like that. I don't think they knew that they were consciously rejecting Jesus. They, they were just, they were just living life. The inn was full. Why? Because everyone was being displaced by Caesar. Everyone had to travel. Everyone was worried about their, their crops at home or their business at home. Everyone was just doing life. They were preoccupied with the details and challenges of life. And so they, they just kind of missed Jesus. And, and I think that's a fair description of our lives. Even for those of us who know him. That, that we are so caught up in just living life that we, that we don't turn to him and, and receive from him what we truly need. But do you know when it's really hard to be so preoccupied with life that we miss Jesus? It's when our life is so very difficult that we can't see our way forward. It's in our moment of of absolute weakness that we naturally turn to God. Because all all of our ideas, all of our strength, everything has been expended and we still don't have any way forward. I mean, if you think back on your life... Those times of great hardship, aren't those the times when you're, you're on your knees more often? When you're in prayer more often? When you're recognizing, Lord, I don't, know, I don't know how I can make it through. This is beyond my control, this situation, this relationship, this illness. Lord, I need you. It's in our weakness that we see our real need. Because in our weakness, we have an accurate description of what it means to be human. That we are needful beings. And that the grace of God is that he leads us to points of weakness so that we would truly see how much we need the power and strength of Christ. Jesus came in weakness to redeem us because in his weakness, he was a human being who could, who could go to the cross. But Jesus also came in weakness to point the way forward in faith so that we would recognize that weakness is the access point to, to faith in Christ. I mean, we can't come to Jesus unless we acknowledge, look, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I can't do this on my own. But we also can't follow Jesus unless we recognize our weakness day in, day out. Because that's the point where we will be, we will stop pretending that we have enough strength to get through the day on our own. And we will begin the day with saying, Lord, I I need everything from you. 
on my own. Things are going to go sideways. I'm going to be exhausted. I'm going to be tired. I'm not going to be able to do what's right. But in your strength, I will be able to continue. We find in the New Testament a constant refrain of the value of acknowledging our weakness. And the Apostle Paul, a man of great faith, he articulates it, I think, most beautifully when he talks about his own, his own struggles, his own challenges. He describes it as a thorn of the flesh or a messenger of Satan. There's something in his life that just brings him to his knees and he pleads with God that God would take it away. And here's God's response in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8 to 10. God says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response is, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Jesus came in weakness so that, so that we would stop pretending that we are so strong. So that we would acknowledge our weakness. And that we would recognize that, that that's okay. That we don't have to be strong. We don't have to save ourselves or the people around us. We need only recognize all that Christ has done for us and trust in his promises to carry us through this life, difficult as it is, to a life of of hope and joy in the presence of God. So weakness was necessary. Weakness in Christ we see is actually the the grace of God, that he he would bring himself to that to that level of weakness for us, but also so that we in our weakness would recognize that this, is, that this is the road God is taking us down to know him more, to find greater strength and greater joy. So this morning, in light of this Christmas story, a story where God himself came in weakness, I think the call for us is, where are we pretending to be very, very strong? When in fact, we need to acknowledge our weakness. And we need to receive strength from Christ. Where are we trying to to do life on our own when in fact we need to recognize we can't do it without God? So let's pray and then respond in joy. God, there is joy in this. God, there is great hope in this. Lord, what what an amazing picture, Jesus, that you would come as a little baby in this level of weakness, we thank you, Jesus, that you did it because you, you loved us so much, because you really wanted to bring us a heavenly hope. You wanted to redeem us, and Jesus, you did. You came and you lived the life that we couldn't live and then went to the cross on our behalf. And God, I pray that that would bring us great joy and hope and strength for us to know for sure that we have the hope of heaven if we have faith in you. I pray, God, for everyone here that has that faith. Lord, would you help us not to then receive it by grace, but then to go on in our own strength, but, Lord, to to continually, to um, persistently look to you for strength, to acknowledge our sin, to to repent of it, and to turn to you. And, Lord, I pray for those here that that haven't come to that point of faith. God, I just pray that you would help them to see, Lord, that they, they do need you. Lord, we all do. And I pray especially, Lord, for those that are in a time of just Their weakness is very evident. Lord, it's a time of great uh, trial in life. God, I pray that you would, that they would feel your presence. Lord, that this text itself would be just a picture for them of the depth of your love. Jesus, that you did not stay distant from us, but you came near, that you gave of yourself, and that you continue to do that through the Spirit of God. I pray, Lord, that this would be a day where we are encouraged and we might rejoice because of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.